0: All right, Uh, open your Bibles please to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, and I'll read this morning verse 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have the first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. How central is Christ to God's outlook? To God's outlook. I'm speaking of God the Father. How central is Christ, his own son, to God's outlook? And then how central is Christ to your outlook as you go through life? How central is Christ? And I I will say that it should be the same. Christ should be as central in your outlook as as he is in the Father's um, outlook. We've come to a special part of Paul's letter to the Colossians. It's an especially Christ-exalting part of the letter of uh, Colossians. On the one hand, these verses that I just read, this uh, paragraph continues the thought of Paul's prayer, for the Colossians and uh, basically he prayed for the Colossians one of the things that he prayed uh, for them is that they would be thankful to the Lord that they'd be joyously thankful that that would characterize them um, increasingly and he prayed for them and then he started giving reasons for them uh, to be thankful and one of the reasons he gave that they'd be thankful to uh, the father is uh, because um, the father has transferred them to the kingdom of his beloved son. It's a kingdom of love. It's a kingdom uh, of, of love and it's a kingdom of um, Christ. And so um, as he mentions Christ, he suddenly launches, it, it uh, brings him to this thought about the exaltation of Christ, the centrality of Christ, the preeminence of Christ. So on the one hand, this continues the thought of Paul's prayer, for the Colossians. On the other hand, it moves in a new direction because it simply focuses on the Son, simply focuses on Christ. And so because of that, some uh, commentators, you can't fail to read this in the commentaries, um, think that this passage, this, this verse that I read, verse 15 through 20, was a self-contained hymn of the early church kind of sounds like that it sounds like it might be um something that maybe the colossians were familiar with that they had sung before when they come together as the lord's people and gather together to worship the lord and sing the praises to um, christ um that kind of thing is it's kind of impossible to prove um we're given scripture we're not given what what goes behind um scripture but uh that may well be the case the language is uh majestic it's uh, exalting to Christ. It's the kind of thing that Christians would offer in praise to uh, the Lord. It is poetic, like the, the hymns that we sing are poetic. In fact, it's divided into two stanzas that match the two great themes of the Bible, creation and redemption. Or you could say creation and new creation. And so it speaks of uh, Christ and creation in verse 15 through 17. And then uh Paul speaks of uh Christ and redemption and his place, his central place in redemption in verse eighteen through twenty. We have hymns that do that too in the, the verses. I think of how great thou art. I can't remember all the uh words to it, but it has a verse that starts out um reveling in God of creation, and then it, the second verse is uh even more intense uh that speaks of God uh in in and in, and in Christ and his work of uh, redemption uh, as well. There's a number of elements that um, tie the two stanzas together. Each of the stanzas uses um, the phrases in him, through him, and for him to show how Christ is central, both to creation and to uh, redemption. They both use the word firstborn. They both use the word firstborn. And we'll talk about that, how they use those words in different ways. They both um, use frequently the word all or every, and I think it's eight times, five in the first stanza and three in the second, and they both use the term heaven and earth, or earth and heaven, and so it's relating all things, both of them, all things in creation and all things in redemption to Christ himself in a way that um, exalts um, him. The Colossians needed this, and you need it too. The Colossians had embraced false doctrine, probably without knowing it, gradually, a little bit at a time, until suddenly they were really off base But basically, they had taken their eyes off of Christ. And so what's written here calls them back. Like I said, I don't know if this was a hymn that um, existed before this letter was uh, written and that the Colossians were uh, familiar with. But if so, it wouldn't be the only time that a familiar hymn calls you back to something that you've forgotten. Something we've sung together in church and in a time of need calls you back to what you No, to be true deep down inside you remember it because you've sung it a hundred times with your brothers and sisters uh in church and um you need to be reminded of it and so it comes back to you in the words of a hymn perhaps part of the reason why paul says later in this uh letter let the word of christ richly dwell in you with all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs maybe this was one of them singing with thankfulness in your hearts to uh, God. Um, so it was important for to be remembered the central place of Christ in creation and in redemption um, as well. And especially in light of the false doctrine that the Colossians had embraced that tended to set Christ to the side that tended to, tended to put him on the periphery and then pursue the Christian life uh, apart from Christ. That being said, this is not a sharp attack on their false doctrine. Uh, but comes to them perhaps as as just a reminder, it's not it's not really uh, geared towards attacking their uh, false um, uh, beliefs about Christ, but just of uh, gently reminding them of what they knew uh, to be true. And uh, you need to be reminded, too, because what's in these uh, this passage about Christ is good news. Is good news, and uh, we'll look at it verse by verse. And at at the end, um, we'll uh, we'll talk about why the Colossians especially needed to hear about the centrality of Christ in these ways, and why you need to hear it too as well. So we'll end with that. But we've got a lot to cover in these two uh, stanzas. The first one asserting that Christ is Lord of creation, and the second stanza asserting that Christ is Lord of redemption. So first, Christ is Lord of uh, creation. And this stands, it's verse 15 through 17. It, uh, begins with two assertions about Christ. And then it spends the rest of the, the verses explaining what those, uh, means. And the first assertion about Christ is this. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the, in, the image of the invisible God. What does it mean that Christ is the image? Christ is an image of the invisible uh, God. Well, it means a couple of uh, different things. One is that Christ is just like the father. He's an image of uh, the father. They are uh, alike. They are the same. And so when the Father does something, you can be sure the Son is doing it too, and for the same reason, because he's just like the Son. He's an image of uh, the invisible God. So when the Father creates out of his overflowing bounty the whole creation in uh, all of the, the, the wonderful variety that we see, stars and planets and rocks and hills, trees, animals, flowers, and he's lavish in what he creates out of the abundance of uh, himself and his love. The Son is just like him the Son is beside him creating and for the same reason as uh, the Father uh, creates. And then when you see the Son, he's stretching out his arms on a cross. He's giving his life willingly as a ransom for many because he came not to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And nobody takes his life from him, but he gives it. He gives it willingly in love of a kind that the world has never seen and can't even imagine uh, before. In doing that, He's not twisting the father's arm to get the father to save. Uh, but no, the father is just like him. The father's heart is just like uh, his as well. As Hebrews uh, chapter one, verse uh, three puts it, the son is, he is the exact representation of the father's nature. If you see uh, what is in Christ, you see all the way through to the heart of the father. And that's good news. That's good news. And so this is good news, what is uh, asserted. He is the image of the invisible uh, God. So that's that's one part of being an image. In order to be an image of something, you have to be like it. You have to be like it. Um, and he's actually exactly like the Father. So he's a perfect image of the, uh, the Father. And so uh, to be an image, first, you have to be like him. Second, an image is what manifests the Father to the world, so he 's an image, and an image is visible he 's the image of the invisible God, and the Father is invisible, but the Son has become uh, visible and so um, this is stated in other passages uh, very well, for example, John chapter one, verse eighteen. No one has seen God at any time, speaking of God the Father, the only begotten Son. Who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. That's the way John uh, begins his um, gospel. Um, and then later on in the Gospel of John, one of Jesus' disciples asks him something along uh, these lines. Um, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Philip probably thought that was a pretty good question to ask from a star disciple, a star student. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, Philip, and yet you have not come to know me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And so Christ is not only just like the Father, but he is the visible manifestation to us of uh the Father. I was reading recently uh of a man, he's he's been to seminary, but he's obviously not uh, a Christian and he was talking very carefully about how he reveres Christianity very very highly. But he's never been able to embrace the distinctive teachings of Christianity or uh, to live by them. And then he quoted uh, one of the verses that I just uh, quoted. Uh, no one has seen God at any time. And he wanted to sort of join with all the other religions and just sort of approaching the mystery of God kind of as a Christian um, and saying, well, we don't know exactly what God is like. But he didn't quote the rest of the verse. He didn't quote the rest of the verse. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has explained him. He's told us what he's like. And I just wanted to say as I was reading, uh, from, from him, uh, from, from this man to say the reality is so much better than you can imagine. So much, you're groping around trying to find, uh, God with Christianity and through all the other religions that this man was, uh, interested in. But we know exactly what the father's like because he's just like, his son. He's just like the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know his son. He's our savior. Uh, we know him. We walk with him. And uh, the father himself is, is, is like him because the son is the image of the invisible God. And that's good news. That's good news uh, for us. Christ is not a mere teacher like uh, the Buddha claims to be, an enlightened one tr- trying to find uh, who God is. Uh, he's a teacher. Christ is a teacher, but he's not a mere teacher. That's not that's not uh, all the importance of him can't be summed up uh, in that. Christ is not a fellow traveler who's made it a little further into the highlands this, where, where the sun is shining and will tell us what he's uh, learned. No, Christ is the image. He's the only way that God is known. And God is just like him. And actually, Christ shows the wisest of the world, the ones who thought they've gone far in explaining what God is like, he shows them to be fools. He shows them that they don't know what what God is like. And the further they try to uh, find God by their own uh, efforts, the further the way they are from them, because we need a crucified Savior. We need uh, the Lord Jesus Christ uh, himself. Well, I'm getting a little ahead of myself because I'm getting into redemption, and this stanza is about... Um, Creation. It's about um, creation. Uh, but it, I, I will say this as well, that there's something about the son, the second person of the Trinity. I don't know what, uh, but there's something about him that suited him for the purpose of manifesting the father to us in a visible way. Um, and even at creation, there's something in the way that the three persons related to one another for all eternity that made it so that when God, chose what the father chose one uh to be the image the visible image of what god is like that he chose the son and that wasn't arbitrary but it was uh fitting uh because this is what the son has been for all eternity the image of uh the invisible god and it's suited uh to him and to uh, his person so that's the first assertion it's good news Hallelujah. He is the image of the invisible God. That's a wonderful truth. The second, There's a second assertion, too. And we'll spend a little bit of time with this one. Christ is, he's the image of the invisible God, and then he is the firstborn of all creation. Christ is the firstborn of all creation. Now, this passage has been a proof text, for those throughout church history that would like to prove that Jesus is a creature um, from Arius in early church history, all the way down to the Jehovah's witness today, who are modern day Arians. They follow in the footsteps of um, Arians and they both triumphantly point to this passage and say, "Well, see Jesus is the first creature. He's the first uh, thing that's created because here it is. He's the firstborn of all creation. And there you have it in black and white. Um, and so Arius would a reason from that. Uh, there was once a time when the son was not he, before he was created because he's the firstborn of all creation. Well, let me say this. Beware of teachers with just one or two proof texts who insist that it not be interpreted thoughtfully, that scripture not be interpreted thoughtfully, but just read off at face value um, without thinking. Paul said uh, the way that he approached uh, scripture, let me read it, Second Timothy um, 2 and uh, 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. So it takes work. It takes work like a workman does to accurately handle the word of truth and not just read it off at face uh, value. Satan himself tempted the Lord. By quoting scripture to him, misapplied, misapplied, not uh, understood, but just uh, read off at uh, face value. Why don't you throw yourself down from this high precipice? Because even scripture itself says that his angels will bear you up. And uh, I told him actually the opposite of uh, trusting in the Lord, which is what that psalm is about through uh, quoting uh, scripture. So what does this mean? What does this mean? That he is the image or sorry, uh, we did that already. He is the firstborn. He is the firstborn of all uh, creation. And when you look at this word, firstborn, you find in scripture that it can mean one of two different things in all the times that it is um, used. It can mean, and often does mean, exactly what it sounds like, firstborn, born first in time, the oldest child in a family, um, and so on. And so it can, and and often does mean that. But it can also mean instead, and often does a position of privilege that has nothing to do with birth order. In fact, that has nothing to do with time at all, but simply has to do with a position of uh, privilege. For example, let me just give you quickly three different um, examples of times when this word firstborn is used in that sense. Exodus chapter 4 and verse uh, 22, where the Lord explains to, through Moses uh, to Pharaoh... Israel is my firstborn. Thus you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go, that he may serve you, serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. And so the Lord says to Pharaoh, something important for him to know, the nation of Israel is my firstborn son. Now, what does that mean about the nation of Israel? Does it mean it's the oldest nation on earth? Because it's not. It's not the oldest nation on earth. There's plenty of nations that are older than Israel in uh, time. Egypt, for example, is older than Israel by a long shot. Um, the Philistine nation is older than Israel. Basically, any nation that you read about Abraham running into when he's uh, walking around on the earth is older than Israel because the nation of Israel starts with him uh, and he was just one man. Uh, that time and not uh, a nation. And so Israel uh, as a, a nation of God's son is a nation late in time appearing uh, uh, compared to plenty of other nations. And yet the Lord says about Israel, and he wants Pharaoh to know this, Israel's is my firstborn son. And what he's saying has nothing to do with time or how old Israel is um, as a nation has to do with a special privilege that Israel has given Israel has a favored status as a nation. The nation of Israel is my firstborn son. He wants um, Pharaoh to know that. Uh, Another uh, time when firstborn is used in this way, just as a position of um, privilege, Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse nine, which says, for I am a father to Israel and Ephraim, is my firstborn. That was one of the tribes of uh, of uh, Israel and uh, had a special blessing, kind of the double blessing went, the double portion of all the blessings went to Ephraim. And so Ephraim among the tribes is to be especially blessed. And the Lord says, Ephraim is my firstborn. Well, uh, Ephraim, neither his father, Joseph was firstborn in any sense. He was He was one of the younger sons. And Ephraim himself had an older brother, Manasseh. And so the uh, Joseph, when he was giving his blessing, he crossed his arms and he, um, uh, uh, sorry, Jacob, he crossed his arms. And he made Joseph very nervous about that because he was messing up the birth order because Ephraim was actually the younger uh, son. And but the Lord says about Ephraim, Ephraim is my firstborn. Nothing to do with birth order, but it's simply a position of privilege. And then finally, um, Psalm 89, Psalm 89 and verse uh, 27. And this is said about David. David, I shall also make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And again, um, David was not the firstborn in his family. That's a big part of the story when he went to be anointed and all the older brothers paraded by Samuel. They all looked like a king. Well, do you have any other sons? Yeah, we have the youngest son. We didn't even bring him because he's out uh, tending the sheep so that everybody else can be here um, for this. And yet the Lord says about David, I'm going to make him my firstborn. What does that mean? A position of privilege among the kings of the earth, the highest of the kings of uh, the earth. So as it says here that Christ is the firstborn of all creation, it doesn't mean first in time with reference to creation or with reference to anything. It means a position of privilege with reference to um, creation. Christ is going to be called the firstborn one more time in this uh, passage um, with reference to the dead, firstborn from the dead. And that one will have to do with time, being like the oldest in a family. Firstborn uh from time, uh, that he is firstborn from among the dead, in a totally different uh word is used, a different preposition is used, the uh, firstborn from among the dead of which he is a part. But this one, uh firstborn here, firstborn born of all uh creation, he's not one of the creation. Firstborn out of, uh, the creation. That's not what is used. He's firstborn has a position of privilege with reference to creation. Firstborn of all, uh, creation. And actually the position of privilege that is his, that is Christ's, as, uh, firstborn is heir. He's to inherit. And what is he to inherit? As firstborn, as God's firstborn, as God's one in this position of privilege, all creation. All creation itself is his um, inheritance and so what's said here is very much like uh, what is said uh, elsewhere Hebrews chapter 1 and verse three verse 2 in these last days he has spoken to us in his son whom he appointed heir of all things. And, uh, firstborn is basically a synonym for heir. It's a position of uh, privilege. He appointed him heir of all things. And so Christ has a position of privilege. It's a privilege of inheriting all things. And one, one of the uh, many reasons that we know that it means that in this context is because, uh, the rest of this the verses in verse 16 and 17 explains this very thing, what it means for him to be the firstborn of all creation. So after asserting that Christ is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation, uh, Paul explains what he means by this. For by him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him because he's the firstborn of all creation. He's the heir of all uh, things, and they're all created uh, for him. So uh, Paul here uh, asserts that all things that existed were created by Christ, by Christ himself. That's how central he is in the work of creation. Nothing was created uh, that was created except for what was created through Christ uh, he gives what was created both in heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible. And then he mentions actually some of the invisible parts of the creation, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. What is he talking about? Things visible and invisible. Well, an angelic realm was created alongside of the visible uh, creation. And we just have glimpses into that angelic realm. It's enough for us to know that it's there, that these are uh, ministering servants uh, of God and uh, have been uh, created without us knowing much about all the details of how it works. But uh, the angels are very attuned to authority. They're, They're called the heavenly hosts, like an army. Um, and, li- like a military they 're very attuned to ranks, and so these seem to be different ranks and uh, dominions uh, 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 different positions of authority among the angels, thrones, dominions, uh, rulers, and uh, uh, authorities. Some of them are ministering spirits, those are the holy angels, some of them are unclean spirits, and there 's a battle going on between them and we participate in that battle. We wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers against the unseen forces of uh of wickedness but they're all creatures they've all been created through christ and uh, that was important for the colossians uh, to know about they were trying to get uh, an edge spiritually by becoming maybe worshipers of an angel maybe having an angel sponsor or looking for an angel sponsor and and uh, paul's trying to reorient them to christ uh, and and showing them that uh, all things are created for Christ, including every angel, things visible and invisible. He's the heir of all of them. They're going to all point uh, to him and their creatures um, as well. And then he says this, he is before all things. This should have made Arius wonder if he was going to read this in context and not just read it um, at uh, face value. Christ is before all things, all the things that have been created. He's not part of the creation himself. He's an heir to all creation, but he's not part of it. That's not what it means that he's firstborn of all creations. He is before all things. And in him, this is the final thing that's said about Christ with reference to creation and the place that he plays in creation, in him all things hold together. All things cohere. All things cohere. Um and hold together, I think not just um physically like what holds molecules uh, together. But to give it the proper purpose, it all holds together in Christ himself. It's amazing to think about. Amazing to think about uh, when Jesus was lying in a manger and his mother was pondering the things that she had heard, things that she believed, things that had been announced to her. She looks down at this little helpless uh, baby that all things in the universe were being held together by this little child. He became a man without ceasing to be God, without giving up uh, what he was as God. And in him, th- all things uh, cohere together. Or to think later about the, the wise men who came a little bit later and they saw this little child and they worship, they bowed down and they worshipped uh, him. And to think that he was holding all things together, including themselves, including the entire creation, including the planets at the farthest reaches of uh, space. And so for the whole universe, not only is Christ himself, the creator in the past, all things were created through him. Not only is he the heir, it's all created for him as his inheritance to exalt him. That's the whole purpose of everything that exists in, in the future. But it's also true in the present. And it was true in the present, even when Christ was uh, a, a, a small child, a little baby in, in a manger, that all things hold together for, uh, all things hold together uh, because of, uh, Christ, in Him all things hold uh, together. So creation centers on Christ. He made it. It's for Him. He holds it all together. You see the uh, bumper sticker, especially in the Northwest. I think you know, nature is my church. You see that, and I I, I have a negative reaction uh, to that. That's a that's a deception, um, actually. But actually, nature is not our church. This is our church. This is our church, but. Because we know God, because we know Christ, I think actually we should um, know the creation and enjoy the creation in a a deeper way. Not only do we enjoy what um, God created, but we know him. We know him in whom it all holds together, and we're able to receive it as his gift, as one who knows the creator. We should be more at home in nature even than the people who have that uh, bumper sticker. Or as uh, Augustine prayed, he prayed, he wrote a whole book praying to the Lord of his uh, confessions, uh, confessing his whole life story, but one of the, uh, one of the titles that he gives to the God that he's praying to is the one who's nearer to me than I am to myself. You know me better than I even know myself. And so he prays the Lord and Christ is the one holding us even uh, together uh, in that way and that's true of all uh, creation. So if you've taken your eyes off of Christ, you need to be reminded that Christ is central. He needs to be as central to your outlook as he is to God. And one of the ways to see that is to see his centrality in creation and be reminded, even in the praises that we sing about Christ, that Christ is Lord of creation. He's the creator of all things. He's the heir of all things. He's the one who holds um, it all uh, together. So that's the first stanza. Christ is Lord of uh, creation. As we move to the second stanza, Christ is Lord of Redemption. We're going to start here. But as we move from one to the other, there's a powerful point that's been left unsaid. It's been presupposed. And maybe it's stronger because it's not said. It's true often of people who play the piano. You know, there's notes that are written, but there's also rests. As well, they're written and those are as eloquent for a a beautiful uh, piece that's played as the notes themselves, the silence as well. It makes an effect um, and a a dramatic effect and can be as important as the notes that are played. But what is not said, not stated here in this beautiful piece of poetry, but is apparent as we start uh, the second uh, stanza is that creation has been disrupted as we start the second stanza, it's been ruined. It's become enemy territory to God. And so in order for creation to, to honor Christ as it was created to do, it must be redeemed. That's just sort of, it's not said, there's no verse between here that says that, but it's just sort of understood um, as we start in verse 18. So Christ is Lord of creation. He's also Lord of redemption. And the central place he has in creation, he also has in redemption. And th- this starts in verse 18. It also asserts two things about Christ and then explains what uh, he means by that. And the first thing that's said about Christ is he also is head of the body, the church. He also is head of the body, the church. Christ had a connection to creation, didn't he? In him, all things hold together. He had a connection to creation, but the connection to the church is even stronger. It's not just all things holding together to him, but it's the connection of a head to a body. It's a personal connection. It's a living connection. It's a vital connection. A head cannot live without a body And a body can't live without a head. And that's the kind of connection that Christ has to his church. He is the head of the body. And again, this is good news. So if you're in Christ, you can't perish. Because Christ would have to perish for you to perish. Because he's the head of the body, which is uh, the church. So he's the head of the body. Christ is the head of the body, which is uh, the church. What do you think of when you think of that? That Christ is head of the church well i hope you don't think of your relationship to christ being mediated by some sort of church hierarchy you know that uh in order for for, he's the head of the body the church and you have to somehow find uh, a gift from the church in order to experience that relationship no it's direct when he says christ is the head of the body of the church the church is you and it's very direct. Christ is your head and directed immediately towards you. So I hope you hear that on the one hand. On the other hand, I want you to see that Christ is connected to you as head. Especially in view of your connection to others in the church, which is why he says he's the head of the church. And that's how Christ's headship is made known and advances On the earth is his headship of you, his body in connection with the church. Um, It speaks here of the universal church. He's also head of the body of the church. That's all believers that are saved um, at this time. But the universal church finds expression in a local church. It always finds expression like this church, Trinity Bible Church. And that's the way in which um, Christ's headship and his redemptive work advances in the world. So, um, in the church, everybody's efforts matter. All that you're doing to advance the, the work of Christ, uh, to advance his headship, his redemption in, uh, the world, um, is, is matters in the way in which we help one another to grow, the way we reach out, uh, to others, uh, together. We do this and function as a church, um, is a uh, one in which everyone 's efforts matter, and everyone is receiving from the head which is uh Christ he is the head of the body uh the church so he's head of the body of the ch- of the body the church that 's the first assertion, and then there's a second assertion: he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead now here here we have our word firstborn again it 's repeated it 's not an accident it's repeated here. Um, It's used again, but it's uh, used in a different sense. In this sense, it truly does mean first in time. And you can tell that from the word that goes with it. He's the beginning. He's the beginning. That has to do with time and the firstborn from, uh, from the dead. When it says that Christ is the firstborn from the dead, it means he's part of the dead. Firstborn from among the dead, which he's a part of and he's the first in time to rise from the dead. And so in that sense, he is firstborn. A different sense than he's firstborn of all creation is the firstborn from the dead. Uh, When it says that Christ is risen from the dead in all of scripture, as well as here, the word dead is plural. You can't really see that in English, but it's always true. He's firstborn from the dead ones. And it speaks of dead bodies, speaks of corpses, speaks of the realm of uh, the dead. So out of that number of which he was part, he he became dead. Uh, he died on the cross. He became a corpse. He's the first to rise again. Now, there's been other uh, resurrections in Scripture, including Lazarus, including others in the Old Testament who were raised from the dead and then they died. But Christ is the first to rise with a new kind of life, a life that can never die. He's alive to God from uh, the dead. And he's the first to be alive from the dead um, in that way. That's why he's called in other uh, passages, of first fruits, first fruits, meaning there's gonna be a crop that's just like him. And so he's um, the firstborn from the dead uh, and he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. If he's the beginning, it means there's more to come. If he's firstborn, it means there will be more brethren uh, that are like him. And that's, uh, again, what's meant from the head and uh, the body. So our sister Eleanor Miller dies this week. Her body becomes dead, a corpse, uh, in that way. And if Christ does not return, you will be just like her. The youngest person here will be just like her one day if Christ, uh, does not return and, uh, will die. But the good news is that Christ is the beginning, the first born from the dead and his redemption is uh, advances through resurrection. He's the firstborn from the dead so that he himself will ha- come to have the first place in everything, not just in creation, but also in redemption as well. So God made him not only to have the first place in creation, creating all things through him and uh, for him, but also the first place in redemption, making him the head of the body, the church, and the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and that's uh, probably a word that the colossians were using a fullness paul probably uses it or reminds them of the way it's been used in uh, another way but uh, i think what's meant here is that the fullness of salvation of every of redemption that's what he's talking about in this passage it's all found in christ it's not found outside of christ at all it's all found in christ it was the father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. I'm I'm out of time. I'm going to go quickly here uh, to get through. But he uses the word reconciliation. It speaks of an exchange. That, That word is found in this. And it's a certain kind of exchange, an exchange of enmity for friendship and in order for Christ to make friends. Out of enemies, exchange enmity for friendship, he needed a cross and the blood that was shed on uh, the cross. So uh, through him, he reconciled all things to himself and he made peace through the blood of the cross. Christ suffered the indignity of the cross. And when God needed a savior, he didn't send someone else. He couldn't send someone else. He sent his exact image. He sent the son himself all the way to the shame, the indignity, the blood, the shame of the cross. And that's good news for us because it means that God himself is uh, a savior. He went to the cross to act as our substitute. He had to go all the way down to the cross and that's where God is met in his reconciling love. He's not met in some noble place where you're gonna reach up to him and find him. He's met all the way down in the shame of uh, the cross. If Christ stooped, if God himself stooped all the way to the cross, in order to be a savior, that's, we also must stoop there in order to find him as a savior as well. One final point, I'll try to make it uh, quickly. You might have to broaden your definition of reconciliation, making enemies uh, to be friends. It focuses on a people, of course, but uh, here it's mentioned as uh, reconciling things reconciling all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. There's the uh, the whole creation, the unseen realm and the seen realm uh, as well. And the, the thought of both of these stanzas together is everything that was created, that's also as far as God's redemption goes. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that everybody's going to be saved, even those that reject Christ? No, it doesn't mean that, but it means that just as sin affected all of creation, all of creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, not by choice, but because of man, because of man's uh, sin. And nothing lies outside of that spread of sin to all um, creation. And because God redeems a people for himself uh, in Christ, all of that for all creation, for all things, is going to be reversed. You might think that's, too heavy of a lift uh for christ but that's the point of this is that as as um all the things that sin is ruined are going to be uh reconciled all that enemy territory is going to be made friendly territory again through the reconciliation of christ not everyone will be saved but everyone will recognize the lordship of christ Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Some through clenched teeth, but Christ will receive the glory from all uh, creation. And in order for that to take place, Christ has to come to conquer the hostile uh, spiritual powers as well. It talks about that later in this um, epistle about him taking them captive and making a display of them through the cross so that uh, the prince of the power of the air has to forfeit territory to uh, the Lord uh, himself to reconcile all things, whether on earth or things in heaven um, as well. So Christ is Lord of creation. Christ is Lord of redemption. And that's good news. Why do the Colossians especially need to hear this? And why do you too need to especially hear that Christ is the center of God's work of creation. He's the center of, and he's everything in God's work of redemption uh, as well. Well, the the Colossians had taken their eyes off of Christ. They had taken their eyes off of Christ and they had uh, uh, sought to live the Christian life uh, through other means, through other, uh, other uh, distractions. Um, and so the authority and triumph of Christ is the authority and the triumph of Christ's love. Of the love that's found in Christ, the love that goes all the way back to uh, God's heart Himself, the love that can make take enemies and make them to be uh, friends. That's what launched Paul on talking about this. Is talking about the kingdom of the Son of His love, and so he started talking about this praise to Christ. And then he's uh, at uh, in the verses to follow. He's going to talk about how the uh, Colossians themselves have been reconciled. Through Christ, they were enemies and they've been made to be uh, friends. When you take your eye off of Christ, you're distant from God's love. It's the kingdom of his love that triumphs through the triumph of uh, Christ and you're distant from God himself and you make up the difference with something colder than the love that's found in Christ than the love that triumphs through Christ, the kingdom of his love like techniques uh, like mystical practices, that's what the Colossians were doing. Like uh, laws, man-made laws, do not taste, do not touch, uh, do not handle. Like other mediators, they're trying to worship angels or develop a special relationship with angels. Or finding a mediator to the mediator, some way to bring yourself to Christ. And the answer is, Christ is everything. His love is everything. His reconciling love is all. And so for the Christian life, you need to draw near to God through Christ, through the love that triumphs uh, through Christ. Live near to him and then practice that same love. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that Christ is the center of all of your ways. And we thank you that this is good news for sinners who have no other hope but Christ himself. Father, we pray that you'd teach us to draw near to you through Christ and then to show the character of Christ, the character that's found nowhere else, to show the character of Christ to others and to be transformed so that, that same character is ours uh, as well. We pray that we might not be distracted from anything less central or make Christ the uh, periphery in any way, but we pray that uh, our Outlook would have Christ in the very center, just as uh, yours does and will for all eternity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.